KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's the treatment. I could sit here and list all the awards and nominations my guest, Traji B. Henson, has had, but then we'd be out of time, and she has much better places to be. So let's just get going and start by talking about her newest project, which is the musical version of Alice Walker's The Color Purple, which is a film in 1985. But in this film, you get to say my favorite line from the book, I think it pisses God off. You walk past a field with a color purple, and you don't notice it. Yeah. That, to me, is the book that you get to say it as Suge Avery. So it made my heart stop. I have to tell you that because oh, this is my favorite line from the book, too. Wow. That's amazing. This has been around for so long. I call it like our Shakespeare. It's our, it's a cornerstone in culture in America. It really is. We now have the Call of Purple multiverse because there's the play, the book, the movie, the original. And now we have the musical version of the screenplay. I remember seeing the movie. I remember reading the book. I never saw myself playing Suge. I never saw myself in the movie. I just didn't. Um, because? Well, one, because the classic had been shot. So why do we need the, but to remake it? But even though it was the it? classic, a lot of the book has been mm-hmm. left. And that line a- we're talking about. Absolutely. Like, a lot of, of the, a lot of, at this time in my life, in my career, I'm thinking, I missed the boat because it's already been done. It's a musical on, on the stage and it's now a classical film, right? Sure. In the canon. So I'm thinking, why would I think that? Not unless I'm going to go to Broadway, you know. Which you had the chance to do. Which I had the chance and I ran. I said, hell no. <laughs> I just <laughs> I just didn't trust my voice singing at that capacity eight shows a week. But here's this funny about when I heard that. First of all, I know you a little bit for a long time as somebody <laughs> who steps up to a challenge. Yeah. In fact, if somebody tells you you can't do something, That's, yes. you say, well, where do I start? <laughs> so that <laughs> you stepped away from something like this was shocking to me. yeah. I trained music in musical theater. So I know what it takes. And I just, you know, I wasn't there. I ran from musical theater because I became a young mother. How about you telling me that you started musical theater yeah. and you were getting your degree in drama? In drama because music theory was, it was the holding me up from graduating because it's, it's like math. No, it is you, math. It is. And I'm not mathematically wired. So I, I literally switched my major back and then I became a young mother and it was time to graduate and I had to choose I was like either New York or the West Coast acting and for me music just seems daunting and scary and unknown and dark to be quite honest because I'd heard stories and I don't know if it was made up fiction or real but it didn't sound inviting you know and I'm a mother and I'm a single female and I just where was the protection it's no union it's not unionized the music industry I need Things I need to think about. My kid, I need insurance. So I chose to go West. And when I went West, I never looked back at singing because I thought it it was a wrap for me. I was a, where am I touring with a kid on my hip? We can talk about so many great scenes in the movie, but she's a character of size. Yeah. And, and you have this talent for, and I think it's your affinity. As soon mm. as the character you're playing shows up in a room, she makes it home. Mm. I was thinking back to Smoking Aces mm. or, or some of these these. <laughs> Or even Proud Mary mm. or or Benjamin Button or the first thing I really saw you in, which, of course, would be Baby Boy. Mm-hmm. So many of the things you've done, 
the division where you play these characters who as soon as they step into a place, it belongs to them. Mm. And and Shug, more than anybody in the book, is that presence. She makes any place that she goes into belong to her. Mm. Yeah. But that's what I work for so hard in all of my characters. I don't want you, when my character hits that screen, I want you to know exactly who that character is. Especially if I'm playing somebody that you've seen before. Like, I don't want you to guess and be like, oh, that's who she's playing? You know what I mean? (laughs) You've seen that. All these characters you play, and it really becomes who Suge is. Yeah. It's about her loyalty. And her loyalty changes the temperature of a room. Mm Mm-hmm. It's funny that that's what you picked up on, because for me, she's hiding behind that big persona. And usually that's what people do when they have those big personas and these big personalities and larger than life. That's usually to cover up the most sacred part of them, their heart. I'm a person who wears it on my sleeve. I have to fix my face in real life because if I'm thinking it, it's on my face. I've been told by my friends, fix your face. That's why I don't act in real life. I don't know how to tell a lie. So if you hid the body, don't tell me because my eyes are going to do everything they're not supposed to do in the interrogation room. Not unless there's a check attached to it. If it's acting, I could do it. Yes, we know you need a check. My guest... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who apparently can't, I can't count on her being a character witness for me is Taraji P. Henson. She starred in the musical remake of The Color Probe. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. But you're talking about her hiding behind something, but she comes out mm. in the movie. And that may be one of my favorite scenes you've ever done, mm. seeing where you're talking to Stevie and you're putting dresses against yourself, mm. but you're doing as much for her yes. as for Shug. Mm-hmm. And that's the scene where she gets to become the mother she's always wanted to be. Oh, talk about it. Because people forget that because it's never really dealt with in the movie. In the book, though, it is. You oh, no, know. She's people there forget that she has kids She's with this in this man. house. I mean, this could be Chekhov. She's in this house with this man, and she's, like, gesturing like she's trying to get a cab out of here. Your Uber's not here yet. Give me a couple of minutes. <laughs> no, you just hit us, because that's how I look at this work. It is like Chekhov. It is very tragic, but beautiful. And, you know, that's why I say Shakespeare. It's a, it's a piece that you can do until the end of time. Like, this piece is going to be around forever. We just showed another aspect of this beautiful poem she's left with us, right? Who's to say what these babies are going to do 20 years from now? You know what I mean? And then 20 years from there. Like, every time we address something from this book or this this incredible story, we're only touching a li- And we've even shortened it on this because we're taking the musical version. So... And he put it the book, the original play, but we still left so much of the book out. So that's what makes this The Color Purple, the multiverse of The Color Purple so exciting. I'm excited to see what happens 20 years from now. But that got me, too, just because as you were talking about this, that, that layer of vulnerability, that, that's yeah. where so much of the anger comes from. Yes. As she's in this house with this man who refuses to even talk about their relationship because he's so caught up in his own self-hatred. It really it's is deep. that sort of story about... Black trauma Mm -hmm. and how each person deals with it. Mm -hmm. And the gift that the women have is that they find a way to come together. The men never have that. Mm -hmm. And that's the point in the book that everybody, when they talk about these men being such terrible, they miss the point that the men don't have anybody to connect to. They're they're all so traumatized. Mm So traumatized. And what I loved, and I loved how Blitz handled the the black men in this film. Blitz Bazoule, the director. God, Blitz Bazoule. Such a genius. And it's the way that he cared for and nurtured the relationship between Mr. and old Mr. Two and Harpo was just beautiful. That when they're walking down the plank from the juke joint and he's drunk and he has a moment, a little glimpse of vulnerability. And he goes, you're done well, son. And he lays his head on his chest. Woo! 
that tenderness, that son who had been watched his father brutalize every woman that's been in his life to break and crack and have show just a little bit of humanity. That was incredible. Then you walk away. You don't see him as a monster. Then when he redeems himself in the end, you can open up your heart for him. You can there's space for forgiveness. You know, this movie is so much about human contact. Mm -hmm. It's about what a touch does to somebody. Another one of my favorite moments is that moment after the sequence in the movie theater where she wakes up in bed and she just puts an arm around her. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing said. That's it. There's so many moments Mm -hmm. like that for you that Mm -hmm. you get to physicalize, don't you? Mm -hmm. It was just beautiful. And that, for me, that's what I wanted to lean into. Because you can get caught up in her bigness and how big she is. And if you just play that then no one will feel her heart. It's always a why. Somebody, if there was a why, Cookie was the way she... There's a why. Somebody walks into the room and they're loud and they don't let you talk and they keep over... There's a why behind that. Don't take it personal. You know, there's always a reason why. Let me ask you this, though, because so much of this for you as a woman of color, mm-hmm. from these characters, these characters sort of claiming space for themselves. Yeah. I'm watching movies to get ready for this, and it was a thrill to have my little uh, Trajee B. Henson Film Festival. At some point... <laughs> In the first scene you have, you throw your arms out. This is all my space here. Mm. And just think about that great moment for me again in Smoking Aces where she's at a diner mm. and she takes over a booth mm. just doing that, putting her arm around this woman who doesn't want anything to do with right. her. And, but she, this is all mine. Mm-hmm. And, and love me for this yeah. because I love myself for exactly. not submitting to having things taken away from me. Being unapologetically you. Right. There, there's only a certain percent of humans that are bold enough to do that. You know, <laughs> and it's unfortunate that most of us are artists, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. I know exactly you what know? you're saying, because I, I think so much of this for you. And we were talking before we got started how this movie in this way feels like it's this metaphor mm-hmm. for the black experience in the arts. Yeah. And if you don't find your group to cling to who you can talk to and find a circle of protection when the world is assaulting you, mm-hmm. then you are nobody. Exactly. And you play so many characters. who We're talking about loyalty. All these women you play, we know who their hearts are there for. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about something like The Division, which mm-hmm. is kind of a cut-and-dry piece of material. Right. We knew where her heart was all the time. Mm-hmm. Is out there in these streets with these people. It wasn't mm-hmm. on that desk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you got to remember that Rain, this is one of my favorite characters, she was raised by lesbian mothers. You know what I mean? So she has a heart. The the way that she had to maneuver through life is that she had to have a heart because the world is beating up on her mothers for loving who they love. So she was a different kind of cop. <laughs> she had a cop with a heart. You can still play that and make it sort of like, I'm letting you know this is a person with a heart instead of saying, this is who I am. Yeah. And I wonder when you pick up a script, you go, you find that moment, because you find it so often, and it, mm-hmm. it becomes this thing I, I love to identify for you, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we know that you're planting a flag and saying, this is my place. First of all, the material has to scare the shit out of me, because that's the only way I will pick it. That's what it. I was about you yeah. singing. It that's has what... to, yeah. Well, whether singing or not, it has to challenge me. It has to scare me, like literally shaking, like... My first initial thought is always, I'm not going to do this because I'm scared, right? It's a process. I'm going to take you through it. So I read it and I'm like, oh, my God, this scares the shit out of me. I can't do this. So as soon as I feel that, I open it back up and I go, great, that's the feeling you were looking for. Okay, now we know we're interested. Now dig back in. Go back in and what scares you? Face it. 
Face what scares you. What is the why? Why does that scare you? See, because what I'm working through is a fear, right? A real fear for me. And if I am transformed by overcoming that fear, the audience has to transform. If you're suspended your disbelief and you're going with me on this story. So if I'm not transformed as the artist, how can the audience be transformed? What you're talking about, in really sort of simple terms, is an acting goal. You're giving yourself something to play. Yeah. And if you can find a way to bring that fear, because some of these characters are acting to sort of quell the fears of other people because Mm -hmm. of their fears. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something, too. I'm going to make sure that you feel comfort Mm -hmm. because I know what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. I have empathy for you. Mm -hmm. But the only way to get empathy from the audience is to play the why. I have to make that why so clear that you're interested. Oh, that's why my aunt acts like that. Then you will start seeing the humanity in other people if I make this character real. Because I could have played Suge and Hustle and Flow a totally different way. But would you would have wanted to reach through that screen and hug her and dust that diamond off? Because she was a diamond in the rough who nobody had poured into her ever before. She didn't even know she had a voice until she heard it for the first time loud, sonically like that. There's so many people in the world like that. So if I didn't care for Suge the way that I did, why would the audience care for her? It's funny as you're saying that because as you did that and you just sort of like clutched your chest. Yeah. There is a moment where I feel a sort of a chill go through me in every one of your performances. Oh, did you bring me here to try to make me cry or something? Absolutely. Why would <laughs> nobody would say hear me cry for goodness sakes? But there is that moment. Oh, shoot! That's that thing she's talking. That's that thing where you feel the chill. You mm. feel the goose flesh in the back of your neck, and it's in every single thing I've seen you do. Thank you. I don't know what it is because I don't. I I don't know. Maybe it's because I don't watch myself on set. I literally trust my process. Once I do my work and I've gone through my backstory and the beautiful thing of the beautiful plus that you gain from training in theater is that when you do so many plays, the beautiful thing about doing plays is you you start the, the story at the beginning and you always go through it sequentially, right? Beginning, middle, end, every night, eight days a week. You know that story like the back of your hand, right? You can pick that script up, turn it to 50, and you know exactly where you're coming from, where you're going, and where you are in that scene, right? So I'm trained like that. So I can take a screenplay, and once I get it in me, and I do all of my research, it's just like a play, except I don't get to live it sequentially when we film it. But as the artist, it's my job to make you believe, once it's all done, that that's what we did, right? But we don't. A lot of times when I start, like, Color Purple, we started with the very last scene first. The very last scene of the movie was shot first. Same thing with Baby Boy. The very last scene of the movie with Jody and uh, Yvette playing cards and she's pregnant with the sec- was shot. That was the first scene we shot in the movie. So you better know where you're coming from and where you're going because in film you don't have the luxury of starting from the beginning and going and working your way through the end of the story. I'm going to take a short break. My guest was just taking this from the entirety of your career, from Baby Boy <laughs> to The Color Purple. In one sentence, is Taraji P. Henson. We'll be back with more of her to come. Stay with us. We're hydrating here with Taraji P. Henson. It's The Treatment, which you can also hear at kcrw.com slash The Treatment. I'm so glad she's here. I know her a little bit for a long time. I, I want to ask you, too, because we were talking a little bit, too, about having a character make an entrance on a boat in a swamp is... If that's not the black experience, I don't know what to say. It's a way or another. 
that moment, that outfit, that headdress, she's doing a little bit of Bessie Smith there. Mm. But she, Who right? I listened to a lot. You a did, didn't you? A lot of Bessie Smith. Because yeah. you hear that mm -hmm. in that. Because a lot of it is sort of like plain spoken talk and yeah. singing rather than just mm -hmm. singing. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like declaiming mm -hmm. as you would do in the play. Mm -hmm. And that she has that note that she hits mm -hmm. as that boat's coming in. Mm -hmm. Talk about doing that scene. Oh, God, it was magical. Let me tell you. Yes, she's a superstar in this film, right, in this story. It was just the way that Blitz shot it. It added to what I brought. Like, when I got on that barge, I just felt like a superstar. I literally, when they say Suge Avery was coming to town and the setup was so grand that her entrance had to be, had to top the setup. Look at how she came to town. The sky got black with all the crows and <laughs> the dancers dancing all over the place and the women snatching the men out. The, Ooh, this woman is coming to town. So when she comes to town, she better comes to town. She better show up, you know. And I thought that was just beautiful. Uh, it needed that big setup for this grand entrance, you know. Listen, that moment, You've gone to concerts, right? And the feeling when you're in that seat and it's like, I want to do that. And you know that that you that's not what you want to do. But something moved you to make you go, I want to move the people like that. Like, I had my moment where like, like I was a rock star. I was a superstar in that moment. Well, if anybody's going to give you a Beyonce moment, it's Blake <laughs> there you Bezalore. Go. But exactly. it's also, there's so much going on that for me because as a person of color watching you be in a sequence like that, cruising on a swamp, it felt like a Rubicon had been crossed. Yeah. Watching you in this moment, getting to sing and own it, not like Hustle and Flow, right. it's just this bird escaping from her. She's watching float around the room She's that you're issuing it. this thing mm, forth. Mm. And, and But also, again, this sort of plain-spoken way where it's not, you're not over-singing it. Mm -hmm. You're saying, this is my story in this song. All the stage by a director of color who's not even an American. Mm -hmm. That felt like, to me, a pivotal film moment in the 21st century. For me, too. Yeah? For me, too. I mean, just the way it was shot. And I just remember getting so full one day on set, looking around, and I and I told everybody, I was like, look at all of this beauty. I don't think I've ever seen black people look this freaking beautiful. Like, it was beyond the wardrobe and the costume. It was just like what Dan did with the lighting and the way each scene was framed. It's like literally you can freeze blindly any frame, freeze it, and put it in the frame and on the wall. It's art. Every frame was art. I just, I don't ever remember feeling so beautiful and seeing so many Black people look so beautiful and classy. It's just different when we have ownership of our stories. You know, when we have true ownership of our stories. I've been in a lot of incredible stories about African-Americans, but it wasn't told by us. And, and you can clearly see a difference you can see it right that's, away. That's the difference between the 1985 color purple Absolutely. and this one. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not dark. We're not a dark people. You know, that's what I love about going to Mars, a Nikki Giovanni project. She says, if you nice want to send by people. The way. Yeah, but no, but listen to what she says. If you want to send people to Mars, send black people. But we come from the known through the unknown to the unknown, and we made something of ourselves. But there's also this plain spoken thing in, in Nikki Giovanni, mm -hmm. celebrating the everyday. Yep. And there's a part of you as an actor 
finds a way to do that. Yeah. That these characters are rooted in the everyday. Doesn't matter how fantastical uh, the setting is for them. Mm-hmm. There's something about them that their feet are always on the ground. So often, Nikki G. Funny writes about feet in her poetry. Seriously, but. For me, that's the beauty of what I do. I'm always looking for how I can I grab the audience and bring them in. And it reminds me of the first time I remember, I'm 53, I remember when I graduated kindergarten because it's a standout moment in my life. What You know, those moments that kind of guide you and shift you and send you to the journey you're supposed to go on. So I was a very rambunctious kid, outspoken, lots of personality. Go figure. Um, <laughs> but... There are two instances in my life, three actually, where the teachers knew how to channel that energy instead of making me a problem child, right? And calling my mother every five minutes, you know, they knew how to channel it and it was arts. And I'll never forget, she, I was tapped to sing um, The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow for the graduation of kindergarten. And I remember I did something at the mic and I said something really loud and the audience laughed. And I was like, ooh, I like that. At that young age, I knew that there was power in that. Then again, in the fifth grade, I used to get, this is back in the day when you could get spanked in school. And my mother gave the teachers her permission because I was a handful. Energetic. Ooh, baby. And I guess my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Lane, if you're still out there, I love you. And you're a big reason as to why I am who I am today in this industry. She got tired of spanking my hand with the 20 rulers that she had in a rubber band because it wasn't working. I wasn't scared. And she put me in my first play and I played the Queen of Hearts. I can't remember this play, but I was the Queen of Hearts. And I walked out on that stage in this big red cape. Crazy. And I again, I did something really funny and loud and the audience fell out laughing. And I was like, there's that feeling again. Again, in the seventh grade, I'm in this school. Literally, I'm in the school. I'm standing in the pipeline to prison. I know I am. It was a school without walls. And that when I say no walls, no walls, like a big office area. They just threw us on this floor and the the classrooms were separated by the partitions. So if there was if Johnny acting out down the hall, the whole floor is disrupted. That was middle school on that floor. Down in the basement was grade school. There were four by four windows that were bulletproof. So we got no sunshine. We couldn't look out. Literally, the pipeline to prison. And it was in the hood. Seventh grade teacher, Mrs. Lane, again, very rambunctious, couldn't keep quiet once I found my footing and found my friends because I was coming from a private school to thrown right in the hood, Southeast D.C., to public school without walls. So I was kind of like a fish out of water because my mother did a great job protecting me and keeping me from hood activities. So now I'm in this school and now I have my friends and I've become rambunctious again and confident. And Ms. Hawkins, if you're still alive, thank you so much because it's it was then where the acting bug actually really bit me. And I was like, this is this is literally this is what I want to do with my life. Um, she put me in a Shakespeare play and we competed in the Shakespeare at the Folger Theater in D.C. Wow. Um, we were the only black group there. We did the scene of the three witches from King Lear. And we were so good that they created an award to give to us that day. So Mrs. Lane, she started sending me towards like being classically trained. See, now I'm starting to form a craft, like to see that, oh, this is a craft. It's not just me being this funny girl with this loud personality. You know, like I could really do something with this. So she introduced me to theater in this school without walls. 
It's the truth. My energetic <laughs> guest who's still managing to sit still, thank goodness, I don't need to go for my rulers, <laughs> is Tarashi P. Henson. She's starring in the remake of the remake of Alice Walker's Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Color Purple. You can also read the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. But as you were saying these things, and it's something I wanted to get to, and it even takes me back to some ways to Nikki Giovanni, mm-hmm. but that your feet are always on the ground, which is why, because these characters have such ownership, there are moments, and I wonder if this surprises you, of laughter and scenes that and I know that when you saw them on the page, there weren't laughs in them. And the fun of watching senior movies with the audience mm-hmm. and to hear people laugh, and you can hear they're laughing and they're surprised they're laughing. Yeah. Because you're playing these characters in a way that's so real that but so grounded mm-hmm. that they can't we can't help but see the humor in these situations. Yeah. That's on purpose. Because in real life we could be crying and then five minutes laughing at the very thing we were crying about. So I actually came to LA to be the funny girl. I'm a comedic actress. Actually, as you say this, I remember you from like Sister, Sister yeah, and, and then sitcoms. I thought yeah. I was going to land a, a sitcom because those are the hours I needed as a single mother. But you know, they say you tell, you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Because that was my plan. My plan was to come out here and book a sitcom and make get filthy rich. That's what I thought I was going to do. And then I booked Baby Boy and it was drama, straight drama. from. So if you see the comedy or humor in a lot of these real uh, dramatic roles that I portray is because I'm always going to add that element because that's that's a three-dimensional character. And I honestly believe that comedians make really good dramatic actors because they always interject that humor in there somewhere. Certainly, you you clearly have a comedic affinity, mm-hmm. but there's also this thing of just about being real in yeah. these situations. These characters are so real and and so tuned into what's going on around them. And that's you, too. Yeah. And it's not just playing for comedy. But it's also just saying, what's going on here? Somebody has to say this. And I'm going to say this in a way that it needs to be said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get told that a lot. You say the things we're thinking. <laughs> I get that from my father, actually. Yeah? He just didn't hold any bars. Like, talk about somebody being unapologetically themselves. A lot of people thought I got cookie from a woman. And I was like, that's totally my dad. I would have to do so much damage control because if he thought it, he would say it. I'll never forget I brought my friend over. May he rest in peace, Jeffrey, since passed on. You know, but Jeffrey was gay. And I brought Jeffrey over. And I was, before I took him in the house, I was like, Jeffrey, now my dad, you know, he's, he's little, you know, don't take it personal. He just, he, that's just how he, that's his love language. My father comes downstairs and I introduce him to Jeffrey. And Jeffrey was very Afrocentric. So he wore these long dashikis and he had beautiful locks and, he was really short, too. So my dad was this big, towering man. And he comes in and he goes, oh, hey, what's up, there, little Because he calls everybody the, the N-word. So I'm, uh, when I say the damage control, it didn't matter your race, either. He said, hey, little I'm going to throw you in my prayer closet, see if you don't catch fire. I was like, Lord Jesus. But he actually put him in the closet and he closed the door and he started laughing and he went upstairs. And I'm standing there crushed, and I just hear, can I come out the closet now? And I open up the door. I was like, Jeffrey, I am so sorry. He said, I understand. I understand. I said, no, no, this is not right. <laughs> but because he's an artist, we laughed about it. You know what I mean? We we were able to laugh about it because he was open. It wasn't like he was hiding. You know, he was very secure in who he was. You know what I mean? It's so, that's why we were friends. But my father, 
He had an incredible, wicked sense of humor. And thank God my friends understood him because he and Jeffrey actually were really cool. Like, after that was the icebreaker, after that, they were cool. Well, out of time, I can only say I'm waiting for Taraji B. Henson's one-person show about her father. Uh, <laughs> but in the interim, we will thank you for coming here to talk about The Color Purple and so many things. It's always a pleasure talking to you. I, please come back and do this again. Thank you. I will. In addition to her other accolades, actor Taraji P. Henson is now a SAG Award nominee as part of the cast for her latest project, the film adaptation of the musical adaptation of The Color Purple. It had one of the biggest Christmas openings ever and is still in theaters. Remember them? Real-life superheroes and stories of the fictional ones as well. There's the archive at kcrw.com slash the treatment. You know me in my alter ego host of The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. Stay with us. More adventures ahead. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's the treatment. It's probably a little bit of a feat just to have read the Isabel Wilson book (laughs) that the film Origin comes from, let alone to make a movie of it. My guest, writer-director Ava DuVernay, did just that. She is here to talk about that astonishing feat. And I described the movie to you when I saw it, which is to say to me it was like an emotional mystery, and we know who the murderer is from the very beginning of the movie. But to me, that's exactly what it is. I'm not trying to be glib about it or cheapen it, but it is that. It's a cultural mystery. Well, I loved the way you described it because, you know, you were one of the, the first people who saw exactly what I was trying to construct um, to really try to take a, a nonfiction book that's you know, facts and figures and anecdotes, but no character to follow. There's no beginning, middle, and end. There's no story. And to try to construct something that's propulsive, narratively propulsive around it and using Isabel Wilkerson as the lead character. But then what does she do? You know, how do you make academic research and, you know, analysis compelling? And my idea was she's uncovering a mystery. And you were the first person who's like, this feels like an emotional mystery. This feel-. So I was excited that, um, that some of that early intention came through for you. So much of what you've done starts from a sense of loss, somebody having something taken away from them. And and that is something that you do to the entire audience here. You do with it being a Selma, where we have these those young women taken away from us. You do it at the beginning of uh, middle of nowhere. You've done that so often. And I wonder how you end up coming back to that, the idea of starting taking something away from the audience and making us feel the emotional import of that. Well, I mean, in trying to get past the idea of making this film from a book called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent, which is a nonfiction book, and to try to create drama around that, I have to go in through um, some emotional pathway, some entryway. And for me, it was clearly about this idea of loss, 
personal loss and grief, yes, that's a, a part of it. But the collective loss that we experience when we divide ourselves from one another, and that is the way that we live. I mean, it's not a choice. We are born into this, like the atmosphere. And so there is no judgment in misinformation. This is the very DNA of the structures and systems that we live within, right? And so that 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 is what caste is. It's always there. It's underneath all of the isms that we experience. It is the foundation of that. And so to try to marry that to something that we all experience, for me, loss was the common denominator. To try to illustrate to people what we lose, what we have lost collectively as a global society by saying this group of people cannot fully participate or this group of people are less than, I can only equate that to what it feels like when there's an absence in our own life. And to try to ask people to think about the parallels between when something or someone is absent. But that you started almost every film you made with that taking away Yes, yes. I just think it's a a humanizing mechanism. It, it allows me to very quickly put you into a space where your heart and your head and your spirit are open. So at the top of Selma, I think you might be speaking about, Absolutely. I open with the four little girls, girls. Yes, the four little girls, you know, in the and Alabama. And let's get to know those little girls in the same way we get to know, and I'm, I'm not going to say anything about the way yeah. origin starts, but the way we get to know somebody. Get to love them just enough for them to become human. Right. And not the four little girls. You get to know them just enough so that they're not the Central Park Five. They are their actual names and who they are. And you get to know the lead, the the first character in origin just enough to know that he's not just a black kid with a hoodie, but that he's Trayvon Martin and that he is on the phone with a friend and he's talking about whatever they're talking about, whatever kids talk about. I just think those few moments to humanize folks before you show any kind of trauma or strain or pain allows us to enter into their humanity and feel more deeply what happens to them. Because I find myself thinking, too, in these movies, and we could say it's something that also links, I think, Middle of Nowhere and Selma and, and Origin, is we get to spend time in neighborhoods and get to know that people live in the houses around these people. And that's something that I think is unique to you, that you show us a street. It's not just about the community, but it's a place where people live and how what they do in their front yard affects the people who live around them. Mm. And, and I love that about your work and that it's so central to this because the kind of emotional imagination it took to put us in her life and to give us an emotional stake because then that figurative and literal murder we see at the beginning— then once it comes into her house, we get a chance to see how it's affected where she lives mm-hmm. and where people live. And origin, it takes us from one neighborhood to another neighborhood to another neighborhood, which is a great way to sort of ground it and make it different from the book. Yes, well, we try to traverse through time, through cultures. There are seven different time periods uh, in the film. And, you know, we're, we're, we're crisscrossing around the globe One of the things, though, that I wanted to do is to make it all feel the same, you know, the same film stock. It's all shot on 16, the same color grade, not change. It's not sepia tone or it's not desaturated when we go to the Holocaust and it's not doesn't turn black and white. It's all the same. There are no 
captions or lower thirds on the screen that tell you where you are. This is Berlin, 1933. This is, you know, Atlanta this year. It is all meant to feel like one story because that is the premise of, as I understand it, of Isabel's book. It's cast is underneath all of us and has been here the whole time. And so we approached it that way in terms of the aesthetic, but also in the storytelling and allowing the stories to move from one to another in a way that didn't call attention to the fact that you were moving from neighborhood to neighborhood. This is all one neighborhood. This is our global concern. And so while you get the specificity of Irma Eckler as she walks down the street in Berlin, a Jewish-German woman who's meeting her her boyfriend, and you get the specificity of you know the homes of Isabel Wilkerson's mother, Ruby, who's in her 80s, and, 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 and what her home looks like as opposed to someone else's, the beating heart of it all is the loss and pain that we endure when we regard those homes as different than ours, that the DNA and the way that those homes function, right, as a place of safety and as a, of solace and of comfort to those who live there, that's the same no matter what the walls look like or what's inside. It's the treatment we're talking about, the street where you live, with my guest, <laughs> Ava DuVernay, writer-director. Her new film is writer-director is Origin. You can also find the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. No, but that idea of how the outside world affects the everyday, it's so crucial to the way you think as a dramatist, as a writer, as well as a filmmaker. I guess I find myself wondering what were the things you saw coming up that did that for you, because they're kind of few and far between. Well, there's one film that comes to mind that I remember I was fascinated by um, coming up, and it was a film called Claudine. And that film, the apartment is fascinating, <laughs> right? The apartment, you know, there's a scene where, you know, a social worker is coming by the home, and literally the whole family is putting away appliances. Anything that looks like it might be worth money. <laughs> anything that looks like it might be worth money, as she assesses if the family is making more money than their public uh, assistance funds, you know, should allow for them to have. Anyway, the, the apartment itself, uh, I just remember the production design of that and actually seeing inside that house. And so such a big part of it. That's Diane Carroll and James Earl Jones, for those that don't know. School and, by Curtis Mayfield. Oh, Come on, somebody. It's so good. It's a beautiful film. But it's about his home as well. If you remember when she goes to his home for a date and he makes her a bubble bath. With uh, with joy. With joy. <laughs> with joy dishwashing liquid. Um, but, you know, that those intimate spaces, that tells us all we need to know about him. As what we're talking about is what you also did in Selma, which for me, the marches don't land and those assemblies of people don't land if we're not in that kitchen with them, like cleaning up after they've made dinner and how people communicate with each other in their homes. Mm -hmm. As a couple, they talk very different in that house mm -hmm. than they do when they're at a social gathering. And so to sort of show how people literally and figuratively inhabit spaces is really important to you. Yes, yes. I remember that scene uh, that you're talking about. First of all, your memory's crazy. I can't believe you remember the Joy dishwashing liquid in Claudine. And also the fact that David Yellowell and Carmen Ajoga were in the kitchen cleaning up. He was taking out the trash. He couldn't find the trash bags. We had all of this business. And it was really important for us to show while it just looked like King was they were cleaning up, you're actually watching King change a trash bag and the subtext of the fact that he doesn't know where they are in the kitchen because he's never there. But none of that is said. It's just people in the kitchen. And I just love those opportunities to add that subtext in. It's just another brushstroke of helping create character.
what's so important about this is there is this, because the book is, and you find a way to, to assimilate that into the film in a really, I think, nuanced way. The book is about an accretion of information. And you're so interested in consuming the next bit, the next bit, and the next bit that you realize you're halfway through. And I actually went back and started to reread the book. I said, wait, what am I missing here? And just feel like all these facts are so interesting because they pile so beautifully on top of one another. But what you're doing is the same thing, is offering up information about Isabel by us seeing where and how she lives. Otherwise, she's just another investigative reporter trying to break this thing, and she's a bystander rather than a participant. Mm. In, in trying to craft the screenplay, it was a question of, yes, I knew I wanted to follow her as she unraveled the mystery of cast and kind of researched this book. But the dilemma was, what's the obstacle? What's the act two break? You know what I mean? What's the, the you know, how do I break into three, the third act? Like all of the things that we know as screenwriters, we have to hit these benchmarks. And as I looked at what I wanted to do, it, it didn't really fall into a typical three act structure. But there's always this need for somebody, your protagonist, to answer a question. Mm -hmm. And did you start with that here the way you did in the other films? Yes. I mean, even more so here. I think this film is all about questions and less about answers. There's actually a line in the film where Anjanou Ellis Taylor uh, says to Blair Underwood in a scene, I don't write questions, I write answers. And, uh, and that's the last line of the trailer. But truly... As a filmmaker, I'm, I don't write answers. I'm just writing questions. I mean, the whole film is a big question as to, does this work for you? Do you agree with this? I'm not seeking a agreement. I'm just seeking engagement. You don't have to uh, you know, agree with me or her about what cast is. But isn't it a kind of intoxicating to think about the idea that there is a phenomenon that, that undergirds so much of what we experience that we don't even talk about, that feels invisible, but it's so much a part of everything we're experiencing? That is a, a, something to engage with. And in reading the book, and this is a conversation I've had with many people, I've always had an issue with the word race, mm. just because we are not different races. Mm -hmm. We are different ethnicities, but we are not different races. It's not trying, like trying to marry a mule to a horse <laughs> to get something. And, and so the very use of that word has an impact that lessens the person who's the recipient of mm -hmm. it, that descriptor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think that we just lack a fluency in anything complex and that we've kind of, we use race as this blunt instrument that's supposed to catch everything, everything that we experience. And that's the, you know, really what I got from her book, from, from Isabel Wilkerson's cast, is there is uh, more nuance that should be applied to these issues. And not as it just as it relates to race, as it relates to sexism, as it relates to ageism, as it relates to ableism, as it relates to anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, homophobia, all of it. We really look at these things so often in a, in a, in a pretty pedestrian way. Uh, you know, how can you solve for it if you don't know all the parts of the equation? And so, you know, the, the hope is that this, this introduces some new language to folks that haven't really thought about cast in that way. I certainly hadn't at all before I read the book three times. And so maybe it introduces us to some new ideas to engage with, especially in this very important election year. And that's why it was important for me that this film be out this year and made some compromises and some sacrifices in terms of the way that we made it so that we could make it quickly and, and get it out there. All these films that you've made or many of them, most of the ones you made, I can only imagine trying to pitch them to a studio person. Well, this one, though. 
This, I mean, was, this pitch is crazy. I mean, this is like the apotheosis this, of all these. This, this pitch would be crazy. There's no story. Uh, <laughs> there is a story. No, 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 there's not. I mean, strictly speaking, there's not a narrative. There's not a, a plot-driven story. Forgive my imprecision. Okay. So <laughs> there is the story about reckoning with how words are used to strip populations of power. Oh, well, when do we make this? When do we start? That's great. Who's going? I mean, that's... I, well, there's so that. many questions. It's, you know, what is it about? Cast. Wait, what? Cast. I want to make a film about you cast. You mean the cast? Like the you cast mean of the actors? Ca exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and then you get into another one. Well, who do you see in the picture? You know, Andrew Ellis Taylor, who is a, a singular, spectacular talent, would not be someone that would go without having a, a real conversation with the studio, unfortunately. You know, Even after King Richard? Well, I mean, as a lead in a, in a, as a, lead in a film, you this, you know, as a lead in the film, look, I'm in these rooms. Absolutely I'm, asking, not. I'm not in these rooms. So I'm asking I you. hope that, that after this, it becomes different and easier for her. But by the very fact that she's never been the lead in the picture, we have our answer. And so, you know, you're looking at, you know, a, a black woman in her early 50s, as am I, um, to be the lead in a film that's a globetrotting, you know, emotional and intellectual investigation and adventure, uh, you know, that's, that's trying to solve for and introduce the idea of caste and that we're going to be zigzagging around the globe and talking about hard stuff and showing some really tough historical moments to get to this beautiful triumphant end, like you don't walk out of the studio with anything more than your water bottle at that point <laughs> and and a pat on the back and so instead of instead of doing that we just didn't do it you know we didn't do it we went directly to folks who were like-minded i always had seen since college i'd always thought about that beautiful voice at the end of pbs documentaries that says with the support of the ford foundation and i always wondered i wonder if they'd support other things and so truly from that idea and that had always been in my head, I reached out to the Ford Foundation and I called Darren Walker, the head of the Ford Foundation, and I asked, you support documentaries, would you ever consider supporting a single narrative film? Not a slate of films or a company, but, but one film. And um, he said yes. And when he said yes, then Melinda Gates said yes, and then Lorene Powell Jobs said, said yes, and Ann Wojcinski and Kimberly Stewart and the NBA player Chris Paul and his wife said yes, and then we were, we were shooting. Well, what we learned from all this is you can always be hydrated when somebody says no to you. Find other places to go. Keep you can going. Get your, keep That's going. Right. You get your movie made. It's always a pleasure to have you here. And the time always goes way too fast. It and does. I get to be wrong at least twice in the conversation, mm -hmm. so that way I know I'm talking to Ava DuVernay. <laughs> As writer-director, her new film is Origin. I can't thank you enough for being here. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having me, Elvis. A decade ago, writer-director Ava DuVernay brought us the true-life film, Selma. She's back to dramatizing nonfiction with Origin. Her adaptation of Isabel Wilkerson's social history, cast. Origin is now in theaters. I'm Elvis Mitchell. Stay with us. More adventures ahead. Tell me, how can we stand by? I don't want to be the It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. With The Treat, a writer and creator whose projects include the most-watched comedy series on Amazon, the thriller comedy Upload. And Greg Daniels, that creator, reminds us that there was a way to grab comedy before you could download it. I'm Greg Daniels, and this is The Treat. 
And when I was like a 12 year old growing up, which is like the perfect time to be super into comedy, which I was, the only on-demand viewing were comedy albums and books. The interesting things about comedy books to me is that there are so many more books published than TV shows, and yet there aren't that many good comedy books compared to TV shows, which I find weird. But two of the ones that I like a lot came out in this time period, like 79 and, and 85. And uh, one of them is the classic uh, sci-fi novel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. And I suggest if you haven't read it and you like Upload, uh, you will probably love it. It's filled with many, many ideas and comedy and science fiction. It's already supplanted the Encyclopedia Galactica as the standard repository of all knowledge and wisdom for two important reasons. First, it's slightly cheaper. And second, it has the words, Don't Panic, printed in large, friendly letters on its cover. Actually, my first job as a writer, I was in a little house, rental house, writing a comedy video game about you know, a parody of all the video games of the 80s with a bunch of people. And every morning I would come down having read some Hitchhiker's Guide and I would tell everybody that I was working with that our ideas had already been used by Douglas Adams because he could think of so many different things. Okay, okay, calm down, calm down, get a grip now. Ooh, this is an interesting sensation. What is it? It's a sort of a tingling in my, well, I suppose I better start finding names for things. Let's call it a tail, yeah. Tail. And hey, what's this roaring sound? Whooshing past what I'm suddenly going to call my head. Wind. Is that a good name? It'll do. Yay, this is really exciting. I'm dizzy with anticipation. And then the other book that I like to promote is uh, by an, a writer named Charles Portis, who people probably know as the guy who wrote True Grit and is a marvelous comedy writer, kind of in a Mark Twainy vibe. And in 1985, he put out a book called Masters of Atlantis, which is an extremely funny book about um, a guy that comes back from World War One and starts like a, uh, a social club slash cult. You know, he's a complete fool. He apologized, too, for his body odor, saying that nerve sweat or fear sweat made for a stronger stink than mere work sweat or heat sweat. Or at least that had been his experience, and that he was always nervous. There's this thing that Mark Twain, there's a quote that I really like about how to tell a story. He wrote an essay called How to Tell a Story, and it sort of draws a distinction between the people who tell you it's going to be funny and, and the people who kind of hang back and just let it drop and look at you and see if you get it. And I, I feel like the, the Portis writing style is like, it is less emotional, but it's like so you know, filled with uh, good things and, you know, makes you feel good. The books A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Masters of Atlantis by writers Douglas Adams and Charles Portis. The treat from writer Greg Daniels, creator of Upload on Amazon. So many treats to choose from, including director Casey Lemon's rumination on a book that she loved. They're at kcrw.com slash the treat. Books that compel, movies that ignite, style that enchants, people that captivate. The relationships with inspirations in all forms that shape the psyches of creators of all kinds. 
They make up the treat. The show is produced and edited by Rebecca Moody and mixed by Katie Gilgrest. It's good to get the help you need, which we get from Anna Buss and Laura Kondarajan. We wish Anna well and a big thank you for all the help she's given us since we went to an hour with the show. She's moving on and we will miss her. Thank you. To Anna Buss and Better Days, everyone, I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.